It's hard to believe, but it's undeniable that we are in the middle of the Christmas season already, Um, whether if you haven't realized that by now, or from the Christmas parade that was yesterday, or all the decorations that are up all over our church. Maybe you've been decorating at your home as well. And I imagine that most of you, if you've decorated your house, you probably have at least one nativity scene somewhere, if not more than one. We've got a couple in our house, and I've heard rumors that more will be on the way soon. But what we talk about often when it comes to Christmas, as we've mentioned already, is you you see signs and we talk about things like, well, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? And Jesus is why we celebrate. But what do we mean by that? We say that, but sometimes I'm not quite sure we always understand what the implications of that is. Like, why do we celebrate on Christmas? Well, part of the reason, one of the things that we are celebrating is that the king has been born. When the king is born, the kingdom rejoices. Or when the new heir or the new king or the new queen is born, at least all of the people around there have to rejoice whether they really like it or not. But what we have or what we do is we remember that our king was born on Christmas. And our Advent series um, is going to be three weeks and it's entitled The Coming King. Because for Israel, what they were anticipating and longing for is for the birth of their king. For the birth of the Messiah, the king who would come and save them and deliver them from darkness. And so we're going to spend this Advent looking back at some prophecies in the book of Isaiah. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Isaiah 60. And we're going to see in these three chapters prophecies or or things that, that foreshadowed or told them of what this king would be like. And so as we look at this, we want to see, well, what were they expecting When Jesus came and they celebrated and rejoiced, why were they rejoicing? They were rejoicing because, in in part, at least these passages here. And so Isaiah, um, to give you some background, he was a prophet. He was arguably the most important, most significant prophet in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah sometimes is referred to as the Romans of the Old Testament because it is so rich and filled with theology. If you were were with us on Wednesday night a while back, we went through the whole book of Isaiah. Um, We're not going to go through it all again. We're just going to be in these three chapters. So it's not going to be a repeat, I promise. Um, But for Isaiah, where he was, we just finished studying the book of Judges. Right? And that's kind of at the beginning of Israel's history. But Isaiah comes much later. This is after there's been many kings. And he's kind of in the middle of them somewhere in that time. But these chapters, because Isaiah's prophes- he prophesies about a lot. These specific chapters are actually given to Israel when they're in exile. These chapters are meant to be read and heard and applied by the Israelites who are no longer in their land anymore who are waiting and longing while captive and oppressed by other nations in Babylon, longing for the king to come back and deliver them and save them. And so what would those people have thought when they heard that a king is going to be born? What would they have longed for? That's what we're going to kind of wrestle with. And really, what kind of king would this Jesus be? with this Christ, this Messiah. That's what we're going to answer these next three weeks. And today what we're going to see is that Jesus is the King of light. And so we're going to see what that means. If you have your Bibles with me, if you'd go ahead and stand as we read through Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. 
but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels from Midian and Epa, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like the cloud, like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships from Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls. Their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteous. Violence shall be no more heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning, that you would be present. Lord, that you would help us to see um, what these words spoken thousands of years ago through your prophet have to say about Jesus and what they have to say to us this morning as well. Pray that you would be with me selfishly, Lord. I have a, a headache that's making it hard to think. I pray that you would just help that go away, give me supernatural strength so that we can hear not from me, but from you this morning. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so we're going to see three things this morning as we look at the King of Light. We're going to see how the King of Light draws, how he transforms, and how he defeats. And so the first thing that the King of Light does, your point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that the King of Light draws all the nations. 
The king of light draws all of the nations because this is what light does, doesn't it? It draws us in, it attracts us, especially if you're surrounded by darkness. You want to get to where the light is so that you can see. Verse 1 tells us, Arise, shine, for the light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be upon you. The king of light draws because the world is stuck in darkness and it can't see. And when you're stuck in blinding darkness, if you've ever been in a cave or in a closet or someplace where you can't even see your hands in front of you, if you can see a light in the distance, you're going to head towards it. And just like that, that is what the king of light does. He draws, but he draws all of the nations to him. Verse 3, and the nation shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus shines so bright in the darkness that everyone from every nation and every place wants to come and see what is this Jesus about. And we're going to look at how Jesus draws all the nations to himself. He does this a number of ways. He does this at his first coming when he was born, which is what we remember at Advent. He still is doing this today at this moment. And he will do it more finally when he returns again at the second Advent. And so we're going to see kind of at each of these points how Jesus draws and transforms and defeats at, in all three of these. At his first coming now and in the future. So how did he do this at first? Because he didn't fully do this yet. You've noticed as we read this, you may think, hey, I'm not quite sure all of that has happened yet. And you would be right, it hasn't. But some of it has. Because in the beginning we know he didn't do this because King Herod, or Herod saw the bright light and he didn't like it. He saw the light and he tried to extinguish it. In fact, he hated the light so much, he said, let's just kill every boy of the right age so that I can get rid of this. But what Herod rejected, other nations and even other kings were drawn to the light of Jesus. Look at verse 6. It may sound familiar. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. These are nations from the east. Can you think of people who came from the east to see the light? Someone who came to see Jesus from far off. Keep reading, they shall bring gold and frankincense and bring good news, the praises of the Lord. I can think of a few wise men or magi or three kings, however you refer to them, who came bringing Jesus' gifts, among them gold and frankincense. Because those men were drawn by the light. They told Herod, we saw a bright star in the sky. We saw the light up there and we had to come. We packed up our camels, we packed up our gifts, and we traveled across many nations and many miles because we wanted to see the king of light who's been born. Jesus fulfilled this passage in part then at this first to show that he is a king who draws the nations. Well, the kings, the leaders closest to him rejected them. There were those way far off who wanted to come and see and worship him. Why? Because in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, it's far greater than just Israel and the Jews. Jesus came not just for that nation, but he came for all of the nations and for all of the people. The only reason that we can gather here this morning and worship Jesus is because he came for the nations. Because that's us. We're the Gentiles. And yet Jesus came and he continues to draw all of the nations to himself. In fact, this is the mission that the king gave to his disciples, to his body. To the church, to us. He gave them the great commission. right, To go out into all of the nations and proclaim to, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Go. 
Proclaim the gospel, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I have given you. And they went out, verse 8, you know, the, oh, who are these that fly like the cloud, like doves to their windows? One of church fathers would say, hey, this is talking about the way that the church went out like birds and covered all the way to the coastlands because the coastlands in Isaiah usually, in, in verse 9, it's usually symbolic of the ends of the earth. That they will go out to the very ends to draw the nations in. Churches founding at Pentecost, the nations were drawn in. That miraculous reversal of Babel, you had 3,000 plus people from all over the world who heard the gospel preached and were saved and baptized and joined into God's kingdom. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather around. They come to you. Those nations all came and saw and heard about the light. They were drawn there by God, not because Jerusalem had a really great tourism campaign. The fact that they were all there at the moment that Peter and the disciples, the apostles were preaching and, and the Holy Spirit fell was because of God, not because of them or their brilliance. They were drawn by God. And yet you notice... Again, Jesus, our, our King of Light, has fulfilled these passages partially, but not completely. In the, in the way that all of these nations will all come together, and they'll all bring their gifts and their gold, and they'll come and they'll worship God. We're still waiting for that. But one day when Jesus returns again, He will do this. One day all the nations will finally be joined together, not under the banner of the UN, but under the banner and the flag of King Jesus. There will be one king, one government, and it will be God's, not ours. Every tongue, every language will confess and sing praises to the king. They'll bring all their riches, uniqueness, and diversity to the house of God. In verse 7, they shall come with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Not just the new temple, but the kingdom is going to be made better and greater because every nation is there. What a day that will be. wonder what that will sound like. As we gather around with lots of people who don't look like us, who don't dress like us, who definitely don't talk and speak like us, and yet all of us will be praising and worshiping and glorifying Jesus. Because He is what draws us together. So the question, if Jesus draws the nation, we need to ask ourselves, or I ask myself as well, do we draw people to Jesus? Because Jesus is a light, and Jesus draws people in. People wanted to be around Jesus when he came. Uh, the lepers and the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, they all wanted to be around where Jesus was. But do people want to be with Jesus after being around you? Does your life make people want to know more about Jesus or does it want people to do, want nothing to do with Jesus? Because if Jesus is anything like you, then they don't want anything to do with him. I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves individually. It's also a good question just for us to ask as a church as well. And do we as Tanglewood, do we make people want to know more about Jesus? Do we make people want to come and worship Jesus, to fall in love greater with Jesus? Do we draw people to Jesus or are we just content to be by ourselves and hope nobody bothers us too much so we can just hang out with Jesus and they might mess it up? Do we draw people with Him? I, I can think of some in my life who embody this. Think of Pastor Randy, a retired pastor who's a pastor for 40 years in Nebraska, who every time I'm around him, he just makes me smile. 
Because his love for Jesus and his humility, it just comes off in his face. I can just look at him and know, man, this is somebody who knows and loves Jesus. What if that was how everybody felt after being with us? That they were drawn to Jesus. So Jesus, the king of light, he draws. Point number two, the king of light also transforms hearts. The king of light transforms hearts. When, G when Jesus and his light shines on people, it changes everything about us. It doesn't just draw us in and make us wonder, what is this? Hey, I'm curious. It then changes who people are. And these verses here, kind of from 10 to 16, are all about how Israel's experience is going to change. So this chapter, it's written to those in exile, and it's talking about, hey, all these foreigners, these other kings who have oppressed you and destroyed your nation, destroyed your people, killed your sons, killed your daughters, taken you in a strange place. Hey, that's all going to change. Soon they're going to come, they're going to build you up. They'll bring your, your kids back and they're going to worship God with you. They'll serve you. That's different. That experience is reversed. Verse 10, the foreigners shall build up your walls. Their kings will minister to you. When the king of light comes, they're going to help rebuild. Well, how is that going to happen? Why, why would God do that? So people may have thought that God was going to reverse things, right? Instead of being oppressed, they were going to get to oppress them. Instead of being defeated, they could defeat their enemies back. Instead of being destroyed, they could destroy them. But at the first advent when King Jesus came and was born, he did something different. He didn't come to defeat their enemies. He came to transform them and to save them. The king of light came to transform the hearts of even his enemies. The Israel doesn't need their enemies defeated. That wasn't their greatest problem, that they were under Roman occupation. Their greatest problem was they were under the occupation of sin and needed a savior. That's why Jesus came for that first. These foreigners and kings, they come to Israel because God has changed their hearts. Because they have been saved and redeemed. Jesus came for the spiritual deliverance. And he came and he even cared about the enemies of Israel. We see how he even reached out and drew and transformed the Romans who were there. Even Roman oppressors wanted to be some of his followers. He healed the servant of a centurion. And he praised his faith. This man has greater faith than everybody in Israel. Because even this Roman soldier sees the light. Jesus healed the ear of another servant, even while being arrested to be executed. He took time to stop and to heal that man. And even, that, why? Because he didn't come to defeat the Romans with military might. That's why he told Peter, put your sword away. This isn't why I'm here. I came for this. I came to die. Your deliverance is that you, your heart, and the Romans' hearts needs to be transformed and saved by the gospel. It doesn't need to be defeated by the sword. And so even as he died on the cross and the earth shook with a mighty earthquake, some of those soldiers who killed him saw the light and they cried out, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was the true King. Jesus, he appeared to Paul on the road to Tarsus. Paul, the great enemy of the church. We forget that. Or we think about it quickly and we kind of move on to think about how traumatic that would have and difficult that would have been for the church. Here's somebody who killed Believers who killed people they knew, who loved, who he had blood on his hands. And yet Jesus appears to Paul as a great light in the heavens. You can read about it in Acts. And he appeared not to defeat Paul. That would have been a miracle to the church would have celebrated and wrote about. And said, here's the great enemy and God slew him and killed him. What a miracle. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. 
But that's not what Jesus did. He transformed him. And the greatest enemy of the church at that point became its greatest servant. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despise you shall bow at your feet. Paul afflicted the church. Paul despised the church. Paul went about grumbling and thinking of how he could do everything he could to end it. How strange Ananias must have felt when he saw Paul bending low at his feet, asking to be healed. And hey, tell me more about Jesus. I don't know if he would have thought of this first. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But this is what the King of Light does. And this is what Jesus still does today. He still transforms hearts. The victory of Jesus and his kingdom and the church, it doesn't come through laws, impressive achievements. The goals and victory of the church isn't seeing lives changed and hearts transformed by the gospel. Because if people are not transformed and changed inwardly by Jesus, it really doesn't matter what they do outwardly. It does matter, but it's not the end of it. If people act like believers and they don't actually know Jesus, then they've missed it. And all this transformation of Jesus, it's available to anyone who wants it. Jesus died on that cross for every single sinner. And his, his sin, the, the salvation and transformation is available to any who come. Verse 11, your gates shall be opened continually, day and night, they shall not be shut. Now that was, it was going to be true of Jerusalem one day. You can read about that more in Revelation 21. But it's also true of the church that, that our doors and the doors of the kingdom are open to any who want to come in. No one is too great of a sinner. No one is too far from Jesus that they cannot come and find mercy in His grace. But we notice so many of these prophecies yet are unfulfilled. They're partially fulfilled by Jesus. Some of them are still being fulfilled now, but we're waiting on many of these. These promises, I'd encourage you sometime later, go flip over to Revelation 21 and read that chapter. Because it echoes this so much. A lot of the same words are used again. or Some of them are fleshed out a little more. But we see them mentioned. The rest of 11 all right, says, The people will bring the wealth of their nations and the kings lead in procession to you. So nations and kings, they're going to parade into the kingdom of God, bringing all of their glory and achievements and throwing it at the cross, at the throne of God. And saying, here, this is yours. Especially this promise we're waiting for in 12. The nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations will be utterly laid waste. Well, there are plenty of nations and kingdoms that are not serving God. I would think pretty much all of them. But yet God promises transformation to any who wants it. But not everyone does want it. And not everyone gets it. This is the sad reality. That many will reject God even in their dying breaths. Because God won't force His transformation, force the gospel on anyone. When Christ returns, it will be joyous, but it won't be joyous for everybody. People will not be turned against their will to the light, but those who have rejected the light get cast out of the light because they didn't want it. They'll be cast to the place of darkness and hell that they've wanted and that they've chosen, and then all of those nations in darkness will perish and be laid waste. And on that day when Jesus returns to transform the world, He will transform what He began spiritually, He will complete physically. Because He came first to save us. But yet He will come again and He will finish His work. Verse 15, Whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever 
a joy from age to age. The kingdom of God is often forsaken and hated in this age. And it has been at various levels in various places. But one day when Jesus returns in the ages to come, that will be true no longer. For the rest of the ages, as long as time exists, the kingdom of God will be majestic and a joy. And we know one of the things we're waiting, we know that our own hearts have been transformed by Jesus. We've been given new hearts, but yet the effects of sin still linger in us. But when Jesus returns again, that will no longer be true. And we wait for that day when the transformation he began on the day that we were born again will be completed and will be glorified. A question I, I have for you, a question I wrestled with in thinking about this is, and do you want your enemies transformed? Do you want your enemies transformed or do you just want them defeated and sent to hell? Because if I'm honest, the way I listen to a lot of Christians talk about their enemies, it doesn't sound like they want them transformed. It sounds like they want them smited and punished forever. Especially the way I hear Christians talk about their political or partisan opponents, the, the derisive way Christians talk about those in other political parties. It's ungodly and it's close to demonic. It makes me think that, you know, you'd really rather they be destroyed in the fires of hell than come to faith in Jesus. And it also it makes me wonder if some would rather that your enemy be in your political party and not know Jesus than know Jesus and disagree with you. What do we really want? What is the kingdom of God really about? And it's not that politics isn't important, it is, but yet we know what's more important the kingdom of God and Jesus. And do we really want, are we longing for those that we think are our enemies or that we disagree with? Do we want them to, to come and to embrace Jesus? Because that's what we long for them. And when they oppose us, do we pray for that end? And is that what we wish for? Or do we just want them to be beat? I found for me that the way that changed my own heart was I just had to start praying for those I considered my enemies. Instead of mocking, speaking poorly of them, I just had to start praying for them. And I found this, I may have told this story once before, um, because I had a calculus teacher in high school that I really hated. Um, she was cruel and mean and not really a very good teacher um, at all. And I really, I hated her. There's no better word to describe it. I'm not going to try and make it sound fancier. I didn't like her at all. Um, and I was complaining to my dad one day, and he said, hey, you should pray for her. I thought, great, well, I know some good psalms I can pray for her, so I'm going to start praying some <laughs> impeccatory psalms over my calculus teacher. And I started there, but what I found was the more I prayed for her, the more that my heart and my prayers began to change. No longer was I just praying that God would judge her and beat her down, but I started to pray that God would transform her and change her and bless her. Now, the story doesn't have that happy ending. She still wasn't a great teacher, and she was still mean. I didn't really like her. But my heart towards her changed a lot. The longer did I wish evil things on her, I wish that God would bless her and bring her to the kingdom. That's what we should do, and I'm not great at that. I still am working at that lesson. I wish I was better, but what if that was how we responded? 
if we longed that everyone would come to the kingdom of light and be transformed and changed by Jesus. Our last point is this. The king of light defeats darkness. The king of light defeats darkness. This is the ultimate work that the king of light will accomplish. He will completely defeat the kingdoms of darkness. In verses 19 and 20, they're really the key, I think, to the whole chapter, definitely to this last part of it. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor for brightness shall be the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And it repeats it because that's what Hebrew poetry does. And your God will be your glory. Your sun will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. The Lord will be your light and your days of mourning shall be ended. When the king of light comes and his light is so bright that the very sun and moon are no longer needed to see. Because he's the only light that we need. Because all darkness everywhere will be cast out. And I'm going to address what this may or may not mean about the sun in a moment. But I want you to, to look at the key part. The key part of this is that this king will defeat darkness completely and totally. And Jesus fulfilled this in part. Other places, Isaiah 9, 1 tells us, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And what do we read for our call to worship from John? That here the light has come. Jesus has been born. The light is here and it is shining. But how does Jesus defeat darkness at his first coming? He first defeated darkness of sin and death at the cross. He might have died on the cross, but he didn't lose on the cross. He won. Darkness and sin didn't win. When Jesus died, death died with him. By the shedding of his blood, the forgiveness of our sins was earned. And his victory began at the moment when he cried out and died, It is finished. I've won. The first part of 21, Your people shall all be righteous. How in the world could they be made righteous? God's people have failed to be righteous from the beginning with Adam and Eve. The whole book is a story of God's people's failure to be righteous without him. Time and time again, righteousness has been lacking. We hit that over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And you'll see it again and again and again in Kings and Chronicles and throughout all the prophets. The people can't be righteous on their own. They need a king to come and make them righteous. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, all of us can be made righteous. The only way to be made righteous is to give our life to the King of Light, to put our faith in God. And he declares us righteous. Not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And at the resurrection of Jesus, he defeated death. He conquered it himself. The grave couldn't hold our Lord. He was in there three days, not because he was struggling, but because he was preaching to the captives and celebrating and hanging out with a man who died next to him. And then he came back when he was ready. And he came back to life. And his resurrection is just the first fruits. It shows the promise of us that those who put their faith in Jesus will also defeat death. That death is not our end. Resurrection is. And we will experience life and resurrection because of Jesus' victory. And Jesus' first coming and the first advent in that birth, he showed us that the victory over the kingdoms of darkness was here. And even now, Jesus' victory... It's not complete, 
but it's still being revealed in small ways and small places by small people. Verse 22, the least one shall become a clan and the smallest one shall become a mighty nation. Jesus did this with his disciples. He's still doing it with us. The kingdom of light fights against darkness with small and weak human beings like you and me. This isn't just about how God will grow Israel again to be bigger. It is about how God grows the kingdom through the least and the smallest one. Faith as small as a mustard seed with 12 disciples that nobody really wanted. They weren't the top. They weren't the biggest, most influential people that you would have chosen. And yet from those 12, Christians now number in the billions. Why? Because God does great things with small people. And small, humble churches... Even like us, like Tanglewood, we're not the biggest church in the world, we're not the biggest church in town, and yet, God uses us and every other church in town, no matter their size, to fight and to proclaim the light and the darkness. Jesus still uses the small and the weak, he uses the unknown, it pleases him to use the weak things of the world, widows, high school dropouts, uneducated, the unskilled, whatever words you want to use or words people would use to be derogatory, Jesus uses the smallest and the weakest to shine his light in the world because it happens not through our gifts but through our king. Thinking, I couldn't help but think of a man um, named Laverne Reiners, but I always just called him my Nebraska grandfather. Um, he wasn't my grandfather. My grandparents lived in Florida. I never saw them very much, but this man and his wife kind of adopted me and my siblings. He was a man he never went to college, graduated high school, and he was a simple farmer all his life at his wife's farm, her old family farm. He taught Sunday school classes, handed out Bibles with the Gideons, and on Wednesday nights he would volunteer and he'd teach children the Bible. And I remember that. I have vivid memories of trying to memorize my Iwana verses because I wanted to get my prizes and get my stickers and move on to the next thing. And here Grandpa Reiners would be quizzing me on every single word of the verse. Not because he was testing me, but he was trying to teach me something. He would ask me about the implications and the depths of every verse. He would say, well, David, what, what is the the there for? Why does it say the? Like, Grandpa, leave me alone. I just, okay, I got the verse. Come on, let's move on. But he would just keep asking. And he died young. He died in his early 60s. Face down in the field, hard at work as he always was, just about every day. Never wrote a book. Didn't have a big name or a fancy ministry. He was just a gentle, ordinary, humble farmer who loved Jesus and loved people and did his best to serve him in small, ordinary ways. In God's kingdom, the least and the smallest one are actually the most significant. God doesn't need the mightiest and the greatest and the best to defeat darkness. He could do it that way. He chooses not to. He chooses to use you and me. And our small, ordinary obedience as we shine a light in a dark, dark world. And one day when Jesus returns, 
the defeat of darkness will be final. On the day when the king of light returns like a bright light in the sky, these promises will be fulfilled. In 18, violence shall be no more heard in your land. Or devastation or destruction within your borders. No more school shootings, no more murder, no more war or terrorist attacks or any kind of violence. It will all be done. No destruction, no more earthquakes or floods or crazy ice storms. One day suffering will just be over. Verse 20, your days of mourning shall be ended. All sadness will be done. No more funerals or grief. No depression or longing or sadness. These passages, again, it should remind us of Revelation 21. There's so many parallels. When Jesus returns, he will cast out all darkness and all of the works of the enemy and sin forever, finally. Let me read 19 and 20 again. The sun will be no more our light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and God will be your glory. The sun will no more go down, nor the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning shall be ended. What does that mean? Does it mean the sun's going to disappear? There won't be a moon anymore. Or it'll just stay still. Maybe the earth will stop rotating. I don't even understand the implications of that, to be honest. Maybe. I can, I can think of that would probably have to change some laws, some physics. Those smarter than me can figure that out. I'm sure that affect the ocean somehow. Maybe that's what it means. I don't think that's what that's trying to say. I think the main point of this is that we won't need those lesser lights anymore because we will have the king of light. When the king of light's fully in our midst, we won't even notice whether the sun is up or down because Jesus is here. Who cares? It's a day or night. I don't know. Here's Jesus. I think another way to use this, my, my house has a lot of big windows. It gets lots of natural light. So on the days when the sun is shining and it's bright, we don't turn on our lights. And if I did, I can't tell if they're on or off because the sun's up. And when the sun goes down, then I can tell. I need to turn on some lights. I think it's going to be like that. Because Jesus is here. There's no more darkness, no shadow, no sin, no suffering, because there's a better light all at work, and he has pushed out all of the darkness, and not just the darkness that we see, but all of the works of the kingdom of darkness, of sin and suffering and death. So what is Advent about? What is Christmas about? It's about many things. But in part, I think Advent is about longing for that day. That's the question. Do you long for that victory? Do you long, do you look forward to it? This is why we long and we celebrate the birth of the king. Because Jesus is born, darkness will end. Because Jesus is born, our sins have been forgiven now and all sin will be thrown into the lake of fire. Because Jesus is born, victory is coming. And we long and we look forward to that day. We look back to when it started. We see how it's here now in small places. And we look forward to one day when it will come again finally. And we won't even notice the light of the sun anymore. That is a king worth celebrating. That is a reason for the season. So I ask you, and I ask myself too, don't just, Christmas is not just about how cute Little baby Jesus is, Christmas is about longing for the end of darkness and the end of sin and suffering that only comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. 
It only comes through what Jesus accomplished on the cross and at the empty tomb. And that is why we celebrate. Talked about the King of Light. He draws all of the nations. He transforms every heart that wants it. And he defeats darkness completely. Remember why we celebrate. Look forward to the end of darkness and to the victory that Jesus will bring. Let's pray and I'll invite our worship team to come up. God, I thank you and I praise you that you have come. Lord, we are waiting, but we are not waiting completely. We know that you came once already. We don't have to wait for that coming, but we are waiting for your next one. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us. Help us this Christmas, this Advent season, to look forward and to long to your coming again. Help us to look back and to celebrate and to look forward and long. Jesus, we hate the darkness, the sin and the suffering and violence and mourning that covers our world. And we know that the only solution is you and your kingdom. Jesus, would you come again? Would you come soon? Would you save your desperate people? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Stand as we continue to worship our Savior and the King of Light. Shine, Jesus, shine. Our benediction comes from the end of 1 Corinthians 15. I plan to schedule these benedictions out ahead of time. But it struck me that before these verses, it reminds us that death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? And thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus. Now, because death will be swallowed up and Jesus gives the victory, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.